Hi there, this is Bob Eubanks, and you're listening to Fab for Free for All. But doesn't everybody? And welcome to another exciting edition of the Fab Four Free for All, the whenever we feel like recording, uh, weekly, yearly, biweekly, you know, whatever, radio show on the internet. Uh, our podcast is a lot of it. What, Tony? You're going to start with me? And please don't complain, folks, because it's it's free. You know, I know we ask for donations and stuff, but we try to get it to you as often as we can, and we love all of you. Anyway, thank you, Davy Jones. You're welcome. I want to. I want to be free. Yeah, thank you. Today, oh, I'm your moderator, Mitch Axelrod, and joining me as they always do, because they just keep following me in here, are Rob Leonard and Tony Chiguano. And today we are going to be talking with someone. I know you love these uh, interview segments we do. And uh, tonight we're actually going to be talking with someone who wrote a really fascinating book um, on a subject that we don't often get to read about. The book is called Maximum Volume, The Life of Beatles Producer George Martin, The Early Years, 1926 to 1966, by Ken Womack. Uh, and we would love to welcome Ken onto the show right now. Hi, Ken. How are you? Hey. Hello, Ken. Hey, good to be here with you guys. Well, I, let's see at the end if you still like to say that. But nice. um, <laughs> I will say that you almost are tied with... Chris O'Dell for the longest title of a book, <laughs> right? A hard day's night is, yeah. and long anyway, day's journey, journey into night. Yeah, right. whatever. But this is actually part one, right, Ken? That's right. Everybody's got something to hide except for maximum volume. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say except Ken and his monkey. But <laughs> so let's get right into this because normally we go chronologically with biography, but you start off yourself in this book talking about, you know, the famous quote about, I don't like your tie for a start. And, you know, we all love that quote and, and it's very, you know, quirky and funny and, and everything, but you really take it pretty seriously in the beginning to the point where when you read this, you sort of get the feeling that without that little quip by George Harrison, we may not be here talking to you tonight. Oh, uh, absolutely. I, I think in many ways, George's remarks saved them. He gave George Martin something to hang on to uh, after he, he dropped that line. And of course, the, the great moment afterwards is, is George Martin with tears of laughter streaming down his face <laughs> yeah. as he just loses it over, over this hilarious moment. And of course, every time I think of it, I remember Paul McCartney's words that, you know, everybody in Liverpool is a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> well, he had just reamed them out, though, right? He really gave them a talking to right before that. Oh, absolutely. He'd scolded them for, for quite a bit. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, you know, for these, what was, George was, what, 20? Yeah. Uh, and all of a sudden, he comes out with that incredible line. So the funny thing is, it's ironic that George Harrison, who after the Beatles were so famous, everything wanted out the first and the most, was the one who probably, you know, gave them their start and kept them at least in the good graces of at least George Martin. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And the guys who were there working with him in the studio that night, it gave them a reason to remember the Beatles, right? You want to be memorable. And at that point, it wasn't going to be their music. Amazing. Right. At Amazing. that point. Yeah. One thing about the opening session, George Martin was forced to sort of take the Beatles in. How angry or upset was he? Was Or is this just part of the thing every day at, at EMI Parlophone? Well, it was such a different vibe then, you know. 
didn't have too much ego about it by the time they showed up because it wasn't his money, right? It wasn't Parlophone's money. Yeah. It was EMI's money. And George was happy to throw that on the table. You know, the sessions at the, that point in time were 90 minutes. They were really carefully structured. They were very strict about the time slots. You know, so it really wasn't that much skin off of his back or nose or whatever part the skin comes off of in those kind of <laughs> ego moments. So it really wasn't that big a deal to him. They didn't make a lot of sense to him, you know, as we know from uh, the great work that Mark Lewison has done. He spent a lot of time thinking about what to call them or who to make the lead singer, which tells you just how out of touch George Martin was with trying to make a pop band work by that time. You know, he was looking for some kind of obvious formula just to make it work. Right. Right. But, but he did want a beat group because he had a, a rival in uh, what Nori Paramore, right? <laughs> he absolutely did. And, uh, you know, it's hard to think of George Martin, you, you know, when we, we look back on YouTube videos and, of course, the the things that we grew up with, like the complete Beatles. Remember that one? Um, sure. It was good. <laughs> and, you sure. know, all the, all the video of George Martin looking and sounding very posh and, <laughs> you know, and gentlemanly. But, yeah, he had an arch enemy. <laughs> yeah, why, don't, I, I, why don't you talk about Nori for a minute? Well, in the book, it gives you the impression that, like, I think of, you know, William Shatner in the movie going, God! <laughs> right, exactly. You know, Nori! Like, Paramore! You know, just anyway. <laughs> yeah, but uh, explain who Nori Paramore was. Well, Nori was... Um, uh, a much more successful producer than George Martin. He was over at the Columbia <laughs> label, which along with HMV, his master's voice, were the two superior labels, the first and second labels at, at EMI. There was a pecking order. And George was managing the one that they were thinking, you know, of mothballing. Yeah. Uh, so there was there was no doubt uh, about what that pecking order was and where George was in it. Um, he was very well aware of it before Oscar Preuss had uh, retired and then subsequently died in retirement very quickly, which is always yeah. sad. But sure. before Preuss left, he said, you know, these guys are going to look for an excuse to uh, to ditch Parlophone. And so George had his work cut out for him. But in any event, uh, around 5960, you see Paramore just scoring hit after hit after hit with Cliff Richard, Cliff Richard in the shadows uh, at various times. That alone was was burning George up because he was seeing all of this easy success. He called it a, a fireproof act, the ability mm. to have, you know, an evergreen in, in many ways, uh, in every sense. And George wanted that. Now, there were a lot of reasons why. Uh, one, he wanted a Jag. Uh, he was <laughs> very clear about this. He wanted a big, fine car uh, like Paramore had. Uh, he was jealous of Nori's life. Nori had a house in the city. He had a place down by the shore. And, and that jag. <laughs> and George was just becoming obsessed with it. He also knew that, um, like George, uh, Nori had kind of a dirty little secret. He was uh, writing the B-sides for Cliff, and he was using pseudonyms. Right. And right, he was right. making pots of money doing this. So not only did George uh, have this deep envy for Nori, but he also was very frustrated by the fact that he was getting essentially residuals when you weren't supposed to be able to do this as a producer, which they were known as A&R heads then, right, right, uh, right. with EMI. So it, it absolutely burned him up um, and, and in every which way possible. Now, what we do know uh, was George was leading a double life. He had a household uh, in the suburbs with um, two children and a wife and 
He had a bachelor place and uh, a very expensive high society girlfriend in the city. So while he made a pretty good salary uh, for that time period, every bit of it was, you know, accounted for yeah. just about yeah. the moment he got his paycheck. And and from a business standpoint, it must have been, as you're saying, frustrating because it was a sort of a nice guy's finished last for him. He was trying to play it on the straight and narrow. And here he's up against Paramore, who's got a little bit of a, a court advantage there with the B-sides <laughs> and stuff like that. So, you know, there, there's no way you can play catch-up when you, you've got somebody like a Cliff Richard selling that many records and you're trying to be trying to play it clean. You know, you got to feel sorry for the guy in a way. Absolutely. And at a certain point, I believe Cliff had some, Cliff and Nori, had 19 top five hits in a row. It was an astounding record. I mean, they were just killing it. But isn't it funny, though, now, you know, I would challenge anyone who listens to our podcast to, to name three of them. Of you Cliff know, Richard of hits? Cliff Richards hits, you know, whereas. <laughs> what do you guys have? I don't know. I could. I don't Living think Doll? Could. Living Doll. Move on. That's, that's young one? Ones? Isn't Move On one of them? Move On. The right. Young Ones? All right, was that's it. it. But, but also, Cliff was just right, Move it. No, okay, right. Cam was not even again, move on. Move Cliff it. wasn't big in the States until like not at Devil all. Woman No, but I'm, I'm even wondering whether, whether or not most Brits in our age bracket or, or younger would be able to name three Cliff Richards hits in the UK. He well, is a Sir I'd be Cliff, curious. so be careful. He is Sir you know, Cliff. But, but, uh, sorry, he's going to come off to me. Sorry. <laughs> in more ways than one. Yes, fair. Oh, sorry. Anywho, you said that you know they were going to shelve the comedy producer or the comedy aspect of EMI. And it's ironic that later on, comedy records helped Parlophone financially. Oh, absolutely. And it was while George really didn't have a good formula for finding a beat band to call his own, he did have a great formula for the comedy records. And he went with feel, just like a lot of great producers do with rock uh, when it came to the comedy. And comedy does save Parlophone. You know, that was a direction he self-consciously took and really made the label sing with, ironically, sing with, with the comedy <laughs> records. He really did turn it around. I doubt that that Parlophone would have finished the 1950s were it not for the comedy records. Yeah, Peter Seller. Right mm -hmm. on the wall. They had a plan that was actually concocted uh, among L.G. Wood, who was the managing director, and uh, some other folks uh, on how to redistribute uh, Parlophone's personnel assets. Uh, George wouldn't have been out of a job, but he wouldn't have been A and R head. That's for sure. And also, too, the comedy was part of what helped members of the Beatles connect to George as well, which had to be a, a positive thing too. Right, they'd grown up with it. They loved those quirky songs and the skits from Milligan and uh, you know the other goons and Flanders and Swan. You know, they were household names at that time. The rare moments when I do get to teach uh, in, in my current post. I do love to play things like the mock Mozart piece with Peter Ustinov, <laughs> sure. because it really reminds us that comedy is not timeless. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, you know, it, it was probably side splittingly funny in the 50s. And now it sounds like a guy making funny sounds right, and then yeah. singing funny sounds along with himself. Right. Except right. Vic, Victor Borger is still funny. Um, yes, that's true. <laughs> and Borger will, and will he always makes sounds. Be dead. Right, yeah. Well, well, yeah, but I make sounds too. But my wife doesn't think yeah, I'm right. funny. Well, that, that, you know what? I wanted to be funny in a long time. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I wanted to go back a little bit because you had mentioned that there was George all acting, all posh, and everything. But I want to go back to his childhood a little bit because you know we always get this impression when you see George that he's oh you know oh yes very upper you know, class upper upbringing. class you know Absolutely. aristocratic and yes it's totally yeah. not the case in his yeah. upbringing was it? 
No, and I, I he was not to the manner born. And George, I think we can best understand him and understand his perspectives and his his abilities to withstand, say, the difficulties of the White Album in, in 1968 by the fact that he lived his life in compartments. You know, he did not grow up to the manner born. He self-consciously reframes his accent after spending time with the officers during World War II when he was with the fleet air arm. And he, he self-consciously chooses to do significant social climbing to put a lot of his past laugh behind him as much as he could. So to do that, you have to live in compartments. You're living a masquerade. And some people were comfortable with it, but there were plenty of people along the way who were put off by that kind of social climbing. So George had to be very careful and very tactical in his dealings with just about everybody, probably for most of his life. Ken, what made you choose George Martin as a topic? Actually, uh, George has written a couple of books himself. Uh, He's had some specials, the documentary from a few years ago and a, a couple other visual things. What made you decide to pick George Martin as a as a topic to write about? Well, three things. Uh, the first one was that there was no biography. There were only the autobiographies that you mentioned. So that was uh, opportunity, uh, certainly in that way. Secondly, I was very interested in understanding uh, the perspective of the person who had all of these songs debuted for him, right? It's an amazing thing. He's the guy that they first try out, you know, fill in the blank song with. It's uh, what a privileged position he held. I mean, you know, to be the one for whom they're literally debuting these songs. So I was interested in in trying to understand the person who had that experience. And again, uh, you know, he he did also experience If You've Got Troubles first. So, you know, it wasn't always (laughs) the fun song. It wasn't always, you know, paradise there. I was going to say, but he he also wielded the red pen, which is really interesting. If You've Got Troubles was 63, it would have been on an album. Okay, so finish, Ken. I'm sorry, (laughs) I I interrupted. (laughs) No, I I love this because this proves that this really is a Fab Four free for all. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) But not like the other guys. No, no. The other guys, they're all quiet and organized. Forget them. No, it's <laughs> chaos. They're just boring. Chaos doth reign. Wow. Uh, when did out? In any event, the third finish. reason, though, was because when you go back and you you study books like All You Need Is Ears, you find that poor George is misremembering things. You know, he sometimes would conflate stories, would remember an anecdote that had to do with one thing when it really had to do with another and so part of what I've been trying to do with this project is disentangle, disaggregate those kinds of issues. Well, it's like watching the scene in the anthology where, you know, the Beatles are all going, wait, was that Revolver? Or wait, now what well, album was, was that? Yeah. What, 60,000. You know, 60, I heard there were 150,000. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's that kind of thing. And yeah, it, it well, takes a book like this George, to undo that. You know, George Harrison couldn't remember... Revolver and no, I know. He said, you know, could yeah, have been one or the other. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. so, Ken, the thing that is fascinating too is that you really take it back to George's beginnings. You you give a very good picture of George Martin, the man, and As the you're boy, saying, and the boy, and you know the fascination with the planes and stuff. You know, early on when he's very young. You know, when people ask the ridiculous question, "Who was the fifth Beatle?" To me, it's it's really it's always George Martin. And it's good to finally have kind of George's early years along with, you know, the work of, as you're saying, of, of Mark Lewis and doing the early years of, of the four. It completes a picture. It completes the picture. How 
difficult was the research? You know, not to say that researching the Beatles is an easy topic. You've got to go through, separate the wheat from the chaff. But how hard was it to find information on the young George Martin? You don't have a public database like the Beatles. You know, how hard was the research aspect? It's very difficult. And uh, it's frankly not as complete as I would like it to be. You know, it's uh, no book is ever ended. It's just published. Wow. (laughs) Um, Well put. Yeah, I mean, it's just the truth. It's it's not as in-depth as I would like it to be. I mean, obviously, it fills out that section of the book nicely, and and there's plenty of it. But a lot of these stories have died with, uh, well, with George's first wife, Sheena, with his his father and his mother. And, uh, you know, they're simply stories that will probably never be told. With a lot of uh, Beatles stories outside of the principles, you know, it's 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 already disappeared into the midst of time. Sure. And so it, it's difficult in that way. So it's been very frustrating. And and of course, you you have George with his own vivid memories, trying to disentangle fact from fiction, trying to create a real timeline. It uh, I won't mince words. It's tough. Um, and none of it would be possible if, you know, Mark had not done his work. Hmm. Mitch mentioned the family. And how much assistance did you get? You know, obviously the photographs came from George's eldest son, but was the family a help in getting to the factual side of things or was it really all just got to be research? They've been as helpful as they possibly can. But the brutal truth is some of these things I'll bring up with with various folks and they'll say we simply don't know. Right. (laughs) And they don't. You know, they they just don't know. It's uh, he lived his life in compartments. And I really believe that that occasionally limited our ability to know some salient facts about his early life. You know, as as you said earlier, there's no database you can go to and just start reeling off information. It doesn't exist. Right. Uh, Right. So trying to put that together is pretty tough. But what we do see um, is uh, what a fascinating, agile mind George even had as a young man, even as a boy. Right. Uh, yeah. His brain was always going. And I, I was had the good fortune to talk to John Curlander the other day, and he was telling me about how George would come in every day and just voraciously read every one of the major London dailies. <laughs> you know, always was at work. And there's really a fourth reason why I wanted to write this book. Five or six years ago, I had seen an interview in a British magazine about George. What was he doing now? You know, and I was curious. And he was making model airplanes. Do, you, do any of you remember this uh, this interview? It was in a British uh, magazine or paper. And it was fascinating because they wanted to talk about the Beatles. And George, you know, had, he'd done that. <laughs> well, many times, yeah. Yeah, many times over, you know, telling the stories um, ad nauseum. He was interested in making models and and the reporter described this room full of, you know, paraphernalia and equipment and, you know, glue, I guess. (laughs) Uh, But it was just (laughs) there you go, because a brain like that can never stop turning. Right. Yeah. Right. Unless the glue calms you down. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> Pick the bed week to stop <laughs> the glue. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But, but it's also, you, know, you mentioned the idea of he told those stories ad nauseum. You know, have you seen, Ken, the parody of uh, the big train, the big skit? train sketch? I have. And it's, uh, it's marvelous, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I wish I knew his reaction. I believe it was made when he was alive. Maybe he saw it. Maybe yes. he oh, yeah. It was definitely made yeah. when he was alive. Yeah. Right? And it's, uh, First of all, it's funny. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah. secondly, I think it does not just skewer George, but but this whole idea of retelling these stories, right? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, 
you know, even though we understand why they have meaning and what they say about the power of art and the enduring nature of of the connection we make with those songs and those albums. (laughs) I mean, it is a bit (laughs) like my my favorite moments when they pull him out of that. What is it? A wheel well or something? With the tape on him? Yeah. When he's taped up and he's well, still going. He's, well, and then when after the, the kidnapping and, and, and they, the they're letting conference. him go because he's just so boring, you know, and I told John, uh, it's like, wait, wait, you were just kidnapped. Uh, but I said to Ringo, uh, don't worry, chap. Brilliant. Um, Ken, um, we talked about Nori before. It seemed that George Martin might have needed um, some people to fight back on. Besides Nori and LG Wood, uh, Dave Dexter Jr. comes in, and we know Dave was kind of a jerk, but it really, <laughs> it really bothered George Martin that, maybe more than the Beatles themselves, that the, the records weren't being released over in America on Capitol. And I noticed that, and I'm, I want to ask about Richard Lester next, but there, but there seemed to be people that came into George Martin's life that he had to fight back against. Yes, absolutely. And, and George put, and I think we all do, but he put great stock in being right at his ideas and his position winning out. And Dave Dexter Jr. is a great example where George knew he was right. He had logic on his side. When you go back and look at that correspondence, you know, over what, 1963, he's he keeps trying to make the argument that he thinks will win. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he doesn't really know Dave and he doesn't know that Dave doesn't like beat music as a jazz guy, at least from what I understand. And so, you know, he's he's trying to argue, though, he's trying to make these pinpoint precise arguments to win the day. And it's just not going to happen. <laughs> uh, so I think George saw it as an intellectual dilemma, right? It's like he's a prosecutor. And if he just makes the case correctly, he'll get the conviction. Right. Um, <laughs> right. You know, Ken, not only did he have, you know, all the other people to fight against, but he had EMI. There was always tension with EMI. He's getting in his own court, even. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, right. And EMI was, uh, you know, a complex place. They had the monthly meeting that George had to, it was required to attend and and share his releases with. In fact, if it weren't for the monthly meeting, I I imagine those singles would almost have been pressed the next day. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah, as it were, they, they came out pretty fast. But, you know, he had many masters that he served, I guess is the way to to put it. Um, He was miffed that EMI wouldn't throw its weight around with capital. They were the subsidiary after all. So he he did fight City Hall a lot. Yeah. Yeah. To the point where he had to walk. Oh, sure. But of course, by the time he walks and we have to question his motives because he needs more money. (laughs) Yes. But by the time he walks... Again, he's right. He knows that he's walking and he's in the right. Not getting that Christmas bonus, um, which was a measly amount of money. No company would not give him a bonus today because it's just such a cheap and easy thing to do. But he wasn't given one because he was management. (laughs) Yeah, he was making (laughs) over a certain amount. That was good enough. It's interesting, too, Ken, because when you do that little segment with him talking to, I think it's to Joseph Lockwood, when they go over the amount of money that was made and he explains to him how it would break down under this new plan and et cetera. The 55000 Well, I'm trying not to give too much away. Oh, I mean, sorry. But I'm just saying, when he explains all of that, I had to read that paragraph twice because you know you follow it up with the idea that 
it was essentially one of the stupidest things he could possibly have done in an attempt to hold on to Martin. And I, I read it. I had to read the section twice to say, this guy really didn't just do this. And he did. And it's, again, I think it's a fascinating bit in the book. It really is. And L.G. Wood, here's a spoiler alert from volume two, which is Sound Pictures. In 1969, L.G. Wood offers George essentially the same salary he did in 65 to come back. Great. Well, why and, not, you know? Well, he's going to try. But, you know, unfortunately. But you know what? There was a, there's a couple of fun things in the beginning. You know, we, we always think, again, he's posh and proper. But there were a couple of things he did in the beginning that may have... I'm not going to say would have gotten him fired, but two things come to mind which I'd like you to discuss. Yelling at Fisk and the Mario Lanza review, <laughs> which I, yeah. I I was laughing out loud. I mean, because you could picture it happening, but if you could just go into them. because oh, the they Mario were Lanza bit was great. Yeah, yeah, so if you could talk about those a little bit. Frankly, I like the one where he's he gets into it with Humphrey Littleton. Well, yeah. yes. That, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you can't give the whole book uh, away. <laughs> imagine that for a moment. This is... Oscar Preuss doesn't have really many acts right, <laughs> that, that right. make any money, you know, and it's uh, as important as Littleton is as a musician and an entertainer. George had no business, you know, <laughs> calling him out. I mean, about that moment in time, George barely knew what EMI stood for. He had no background in the recording industry. If it weren't for Sidney Harrison, he, he would have nothing to do with EMI. You know, he needed the connection. So it's really quite stunning that he he felt he could be cheeky in that way. And it's hard to explain sometimes how he would choose his battles. Other than he has said many times that he is competitive to a fault. Um, there's a great moment with Giles in, uh, I guess it's the the produced by George Martin documentary. Yes. When it's beginning, George says something like, well, you know, I'm competitive. <laughs> and Giles <laughs> yeah. just loses it. He goes, oh, no kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, but the interesting thing, too, though, and especially now, Ken, that we're, we're talking, we're kind of putting it into perspective. You know, if you think about how old George was when he first got the job with EMI, and you think about the Beatles coming in, you know, you do make some references to it, but they were far more similar, you know, especially now that we know that George was not from a posh upbringing. He was far more similar to the Beatles themselves than I think a lot of people really realize. Like you said, you use the word, you know, cheeky, and that's something that is often the tag to the Beatles. Well, and to me, you, you've just hit on the secret to their success, frankly, and, and students and you know, audiences ask me this question all the time. You know, what are the business lessons? So um, here we have George and the Beatles and Brian, of course, and they disrupt an entire record industry, a whole industry. These guys disrupt and they're all outsiders. And they're probably even more than that. They're fakers. <laughs> right. right. They're, right. Uh, George is a, a fake posh accent, a guy in the record business who really has no experience you know, with a rock band, he just thinks it would be a great way to to get a jag. Um, you've got <laughs> Brian, who has failed at almost every profession he's ever tried until recently. And then you've got the Beatles and they're all outsiders. They're all these outsiders and they come at this industry sideways and they knock it on its head. Yeah. 
Yeah. It, it's just fascinating. And every time I think of that, I begin in my head thinking, OK, what industry could I disrupt? <laughs> <laughs> you know, in fact, w- when we get off this call, let's have another one. Figure out what we're going to disrupt. The you, fest. You forget to disrupt something. The fest. You, you want Fab Four free for all with you in the trenches. All right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't want us anywhere near your yeah. trenches. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> Go ahead, Rob. Rob, stay away from the trench, Rob. Ken, one of the things that I found really kind of new information, actually, is you go into detail pretty heavily on how Richard Lester was really treating George Martin pretty bad, like an arrogant guy that we never thought that he might be. You show some stories in the book about how Richard Lester just didn't like George Martin and well, it seemed more- sort of butting in in, in several times uh, with the music. Maybe it's best to turn that on its head, too. I mean... Remember, I'm writing generally from George's perspective. George doesn't like Richard Lester. (laughs) (laughs) um, Well, Richard didn't like him either. (laughs) No, no, it was mutual. But, um, you know, but Richard could work with him uh, until he couldn't. (laughs) He didn't like George's style. And for his part, uh, I, I did spend a little extra time on that because I wanted to try to show a kind of slow burn. And uh, thanks to Jeff Emmerich, we have great notes on that session uh, with A Hard Day's Night where George was really disgusted with Lester up in the booth, you know, having the gall to offer his suggestions, right? Well, And I Love Her was too long. It was not a good song. It was too long. I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> right. And, and, you know, George did not appreciate people messing with the biggest act in his stable quite frankly. And, you know, as as the decade wears on and George forms air, the stakes become even higher because there is meal ticket at that point. Sure. And uh, he does not like others messing around in his his chicken coop or whatever the phrase is. So he becomes rather fierce. So I think he was giving as good as he he got there with with Richard Lester. And Richard knew what to do. And as George said, he included him out. (laughs) Yes, a great phrase, included him out. You know what? We want to talk about a little more after the break about the Beatles. But before the break, I want to just get into a couple more things that people may not have known about George Martin, which are really, I found fascinating in the first half of the book. He was the pioneer, actually, the the forerunner to karaoke, wasn't he? That's right. Those those EMI sing-along discs. Um, he was on to something with those. I, I thought it was a fabulous idea, but it was ahead of its time. They moved a few units before the, the project collapsed in on itself. But what it shows more than anything else is the fact that he was looking for ways to innovate. He may not have had the right formula in his mind for the longest time uh, about a beat band. In fact, one of my favorite scenes in his story is is the night that the Temperance Seven give him his first number one hit with You're Driving Me Crazy. (laughs) And he's at this dinner with Judy and the others, and he's just like, wow, I don't believe this. You know, I'm getting a number one with this this (laughs) ragtag Dixieland band of drums. (laughs) There was something (laughs) deflating about it, you know, 11 years after he started, and it's these guys. (laughs) Right, right. And then, uh, you know, we all say George Harrison had his bout with plagiarism, but Mr. Martin, the other George, also had a little bout with plagiarism, didn't he? Or at least accusations of plagiarism? Well, he certainly did, and and he wasn't alone, you know, again, he wasn't alone in changing his accent, but he was also not alone in the 50s. 
even in the 60s of when British producers like George would would quickly, very hastily record a song that was a hit on the American hit parade. And, uh, you know, George just took it too far on more than one occasion. I think most embarrassingly so, it was on, what, Jukebox Jury, when George was convicted, <laughs> right? found guilty of plagiarizing. Itsy Bitsy. Itsy Bitsy, itsy bitsy yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and you can see how crass he was willing to be. He had, what, the, the young singer walking around the city with this woman in a bikini, and it was it was really kind of crass. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and they called him on it on national TV, but it, it wasn't the only time he was sort of embarrassed for this kind of stuff. And isn't it amazing how just a few years later, you'd have the supermarket records in the UK, you know, the Mike Sam singers and all these people doing the the sound-alike hits, and those were charting at the same time that the original songs were on the charts. They are, and, and you know, I've noticed a few times uh, being in the UK, even in the last five or ten years, there is still a fairly robust market there for those kinds of songs. Yeah, it's Yeah, you'll, you'll hear, you know, recent hits, you sort of reimagined, re-envisaged, Sung by, <laughs> Sung by Paul McCartney. Sung by Paul nice. McCartney. Well, also, one more thing George might have borrowed or did borrow was uh, In the Mood at the end of uh, All You Need Is Love. Hey, we're not yeah, getting we, Beatles we until the second half of the show. <laughs> that's actually in the next book. And you know, I was going to say, and that's not in the book yet. I'm, not, I'm not just saying. wrong you know, year, you're not I, in the book yet. I'm just yet. saying, you know. Next but, but, book. And, and the other thing I found really, really fascinating was George sitting at, in Capitol listening to Sinatra record the whole Sinatra and stereo aspect, which may have had an effect or non-effect on his future with the Beatles, if you can just get into that a little bit. Sure. And, and for George Martin, that session over at Capitol Studios was one more reminder that EMI was, was behind the times. Abbey Road was such a first-class facility in a lot of ways but they, they had this technological lag that was instituted by the, the maintenance engineers where they would test something out for months, if not a year on end, uh, before they would release it for general usage. And, uh, you know, that that's when George was seeing some great work being done, I believe, with some compressors or limiters. I'd, I'd have to go back and look. But, you know, he was struck by that. He was struck by the environment and how professional it seemed. And he simply didn't feel that way about what was happening back at Abbey Road. But having said that, I think it's important to remember that was George's point of view. And I think sometimes, as as you guys said earlier and so astutely, George needed he needed, you know, opponents to sort of shadow box with. And sometimes it was Abbey Road, sometimes it was EMI for being cheap. But I think he did like to have these kinds of uh, almost supervillains in his life so that he could go and be heroic. Yeah. Right. Interesting. And well, well we're gonna we are gonna take a break right now. We are talking with Ken Womack or Kenneth Womack, if you don't mind, the author of the book Maximum Volume, The Life of Beatles producer George Martin, the early years, nineteen twenty six to nineteen sixty six, I bet a breath. Uh, and we will be right back after this. Hi, folks. This is Tony from Fab Four Free-For-All. As Mitch has mentioned several times, the cast of Fab Four Free-For-All do not profit in any way doing these shows for all of you. In fact, we actually lose money because of studio time and other production expenses. Now, we have looked into show sponsors, but for a number of reasons, we've decided it would be in the best interest of all of us, including you, our listeners, not to have sponsored ads in our shows. 
So what we've done is set up a Patreon account. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that allows artists to obtain funding from patrons on a recurring basis. Now, it can be as little or as much as you think you can send to us for the work that we put into providing quality Fab Four free-for-all shows. Now, we know that we have thousands of worldwide listeners, and if each of you just contributed a dollar a month, that's just 25 cents per episode, we would have enough to retire and not have to do these shows. <laughs> Sorry. Seriously, though, we've gotten some great feedback from everyone about how much these shows mean to you, and we feel the same way. But it would be nice if we could break even in terms of cost so that we can continue to bring these shows to you in a timely fashion. Yeah, I know, we can be delayed every once in a while, but that's because, as John Lennon so beautifully said, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. But we do vow to make every effort to have a quality show to you every week. We only ask that everyone go and visit Patreon.com to at least check out what it's all about and to see if you can contribute a little something in return for all the hard work and effort that we put into these shows for you. Just do a search for Fab Four Free For All and tell us that you give a buck about what we do. Thanks to all of you for being such great loyal listeners. And we are back. We are speaking, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, I am speaking with my voice. I am Mitch Axelrod, and this is the Fab Four Free For All, and joining me for the second half of this great show are... Rob Leonard. And... Tony Chuguardo. And we are on the line with Ken Womack, the uh, author of Maximum Volume, The Life of Beatles producer George Martin, The Early Years, 1926 to 1966. Uh, I'm going to start this part of the show with a quote, because, you know, we're going to get into a little bit of the Beatles years. We really didn't touch much on the Beatles in the first half, but... George Martin is the chap they send all the weirdos to. And speaking of weirdos, Mr. Martin agrees to a meeting in February of 1962 with the manager of the latest weirdos, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. And uh, it's an incredible moment to be sure. But mostly from, uh, from my perspective, from the gambit that Brian plays when he goes in the room, you know, it, it, it had to have been just patently ridiculous <laughs> what yeah. he did at the time. Uh, in other words, saying, I, I've got this beat van from Liverpool. And it, and that immediately sends uh, George's antennae up because here's a guy who's done some social climbing. He doesn't want to be with a beat van from Liverpool. <laughs> that's, that's not interesting to him. But then Brian wouldn't know that. But right. then secondly... Uh, you know, he says they're going to be bigger than Elvis. <laughs> and that's a preposterous thing to say in February 1962. Now, having said that, uh, Brian happens to be right. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, right. But, you know, that hindsight isn't available at that moment. So he really plays it perfectly in hindsight, but absolutely ridiculously in the moment. And George sees it for that. And, um, and he tells it like it is. He's not knocked out. Uh, that's, I think, the direct quote. I'm not knocked out by them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, which I guess 60 speak for this is no good. And, uh, you know, that really should have been the end of the conversation, particularly when Brian didn't seem keen on bringing them down to, to the city. Do you think that if Brian had actually said that, that they're going to be bigger than Cliff Richard in the shadows, you think it would have been a completely different response from uh, <laughs> you, you think George would have just taken them right there and then? <laughs> it's hard to say. You know, they, they'd already been rejected, essentially, by EMI. As, as Mark Lewison has demonstrated, 
George's memories of of being the quirky label that people like Sid Coleman would send acts to was a bit of a fiction. You know, Coleman didn't really like George. (laughs) He was probably trying to do a solid for Brian, and they were probably all a lot more influenced by nothing more than the fact that Brian sold a lot of records up north. Sure. Yeah, Yeah, Um, sure. I mean, that was the thing that kept them in the ballgame and really got Brian into those meetings. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, in a way, it was a it, it was kind of a I won't say a conflict of interest. It was a wonderful set of interests for Brian to have both the store and be the manager of the group and go soliciting the group. I mean, you know, but he didn't think about it. He, he wasn't. No. Like, well, I'm no. going to get a group and then, you know, right. Connect this. Right. Yeah. No, no. He, he was he was really on the straight and no pun intended. Wrong, wrong he was on the straight and narrow with it. Yeah. But initially, you know, he did. He did reject them, and even when they took them back in, it was only going to be for six songs. So he figured, all right, I can deal with this for six songs, correct? That's right. The six sides were all George was going to do. They had this ridiculous penny-per-record contract, which meant exactly that. For 78, too, right? At first, that's right. In fact, did they cross that out on the contract? I can't remember what it was. They dealt with that in some way. But, uh, you know... They weren't going to sell a million records and make $400 to split between the five of them or whatever ridiculous number it was. I mean, it was really a no-risk contract. There was just almost no risk at all in it. And in fact, anything that would mitigate the risk would mean that they had a a blockbuster on their hands. And then, of course, nobody cares about risk anymore at that point. Right. So it it was kind of a ridiculously cheap deal. I mentioned earlier that, you know, the money was EMIs, but it wasn't really a lot of money. They owned the studio yeah. <laughs> outright. They weren't making payments on Abbey Road. So and George was on straight salary. So the cost was really minimal um, at, at that time. So th- there was almost no risk at all involved. And again, like you said, George was just going to do six sides and be done with them. You know, Ken, in, in the book and then you just mentioned, you know, they're and Mitch just mentioned they were only really supposed to record six songs and get songwriting rights to EMI. EMI did try to buy Dick James' music, but were cheap with it, which I didn't know about. I mean, it might be somewhere else, but I didn't know about that. No, and George, uh, if I recall, advised them to do it. <laughs> of course. It, it would yeah, have only made of the sense. Few, yeah, it was one of the few moments when he was being a good company man, and they just they got cheap on it. and. They would have done the Beatles a world of good, frankly. It would have written a different chapter if those copyrights had been held in-house. Sure. Yeah. Well, sure. It would have kept them maybe not fighting at the end, you know. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Not about that. Yeah. <laughs> right. But then, you know, we have to remember here that it's not Ringo, it's Pete Best here. And I think one of the, the anecdotes you tell in the book is very telling because— uh, you know, they get the good response. To, well, they get the good news that they got this contract, that they're signed. And all of the Beatles, well, three of the Beatles have this incredibly funny and, and uh, you know, witty responses, except one. Yeah. And I think that was really telling. Yeah. Pete was Pete was never in their inner circle. You know, he was really he joined the Beatles when he auditioned in an audition. He could never fail. Right. Yeah. So. It was a bit of an empty relationship anyway. I, I love George Harrison's response in the telegrams when it says, buy more guitars. 
I know. Well, the, and the other two were really funny. What was uh, John said? We're, you know, we're millionaires, or when are we going to be millionaires? Right. Or, I mean, right. it just yeah, really send money. You know, ex- exactly. Send ten thousand. What was it? Send ten thousand pounds or something? <laughs> really, just witty. But then you, as you state, Pete Best, no response whatsoever. Nothing. Right. Well, and did they tell him? <laughs> well, the, well, you know what? That's a good Eventually point. Eventually they did. Yeah. Now, the importance of November... You're fired. We've got a record deal. <laughs> True. I need you to talk about the importance of November 26, 1962. I think it's a turning point in, in the whole shebang, the whole career of the Beatles and George Morton. But absolutely. And again, and I sound like a broken record, but we don't know about that if it's not for the sleuth work of, of Mark Lewis. And, right. And I asked him about that um, either last summer or the summer before. And he he said that it was just a process of elimination. He worked through calendars, desk diaries, et cetera, et cetera, till he arrived at that date and they weren't in the studio. And uh, suddenly it all added up. That was the day that he brings them in and springs this amazing thing on them. We're going to make an album. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, to wow. them, that was ludicrous. Why would they make it? Then nobody's going to make an album with us. You know, it was really an amazing moment. It was very much like the moment when he says, you know, gentlemen, you've just recorded your first number one. And what did the Beatles do? They don't stand up and salute. They break into laughter because it's ridiculous. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> it's not possible. Right. Please Please Me was such an integral song. Uh, to George throwing his lot in with that band, if you think about it. And again, it has to do with the fact that he was right. He told them what to do with it. They went and almost immediately did it. He misses the session, but he hears the acetates, and lo and behold, they listened to him. (laughs) And they had taken his advice, and they had made the song from what he thought was slow and dreary into something really powerful. So in a way, it sets the scene for so much too, Ken, because later in the book, and again, not to give too, too much away, but from reading the the recording sessions books, etc., but now seeing it in prose, seeing it written out in paragraphs of what is really going on in terms of George Martin's hands-on involvement with co-creating the music with them later, the extensive amount of parts that he plays, you know, literally on the recordings and stuff like that, it sounds as though that moment with Please Please Me made him realize that, that he had collaborators in, the, in these four also, which must have been just such a wonderful realization for somebody who yearned to be very creative. Oh, absolutely. And that was his dream all throughout the 50s is wouldn't it be amazing to make records with pictures and sound, right? And he had dreamt of that uh, and and hungered for it. And that may have been the thing he was searching for all of those years. So absolutely, it was um, it was revelatory for him. But he was willing to do anything to consolidate it. So another reason that we know George held that meeting with Brian and, and the boys was because uh, Love Me Do had climbed up the charts. And who made that happen? It wasn't Brian buying a bunch of records. It was Kim Bennett, the other guy who worked in the office above the HMV on Oxford Street with Sid Coleman. And Kim had worked very hard to plug that record. He was one of the best record pluggers of his time. He worked that thing to death. It took everything he had to pop it up to number 17. And what does George do with him after that? He cuts him out. Hmm. He freezes EMI out of the deal 
for EMI. It's really quite stunning if you think about it. And all those years later, when Mark tracked down Kim, he said, uh, I can almost hear the guy's voice, even though I've never heard it. He said, oh, George was very naughty. <laughs> um, but you know what? That's that's the kind of thing you say 40 years later. It was much worse than that. <laughs> he actually freezes out his own company and he pushes the Beatles to external partners. It's really something the way George builds control around that band. Did it have something to you think, Ken, at that point with a bit of a bitterness towards what they were doing to him? You know what I mean? Oh, like, sure. He was, you know, he was pissed, quite yeah. frankly, about the contract. He wasn't getting residuals. Of course, that whole time he'd set off this bomb. He'd lit this fuse back in, what was it, February or March when he had lunch with David Frost. Yeah. And so yeah. throughout the whole of that year, this time bomb is just ticking, 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 ticking. And it goes off in, uh, you know, later in the year. And, and Nori Paramore can't figure out who was it <laughs> um, who, who told on him for being this, uh, for using those aliases and, and making pots of money off of Cliff? Wow. I want to just go back one real quick thing also to November 26, because not only making the album, but the trust between George Martin and Ringo Starr, I think, was solidified, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. And Ringo probably overreacts to that. Because already the story was circulating that George had ditched Pete. That's not how that played. And George went to his grave, and I believe correctly in this case, and remembering accurately, that he wasn't trying to get rid of Pete. He just wanted a competent studio drummer to play a session man. They did it all the time. He never said, kick him out. He just said, you know, get somebody else for the studio. And George's thinking was, well, the guy's kind of handsome. They'll use him you know, for live performances, who cares? <laughs> yeah. That's their problem. You know, my problem is is creating product in the studio. So, you know, that was really an issue for Brian and, and the Beatles to play out. And we all know that Bernard Purdy really played in all the records anyway. <laughs> That's right. right. So anyway. That's what he so, says. Right. <laughs> um, Ken, we've been talking about the Beatles. You know, it's a lot of the book is about the Beatles and George Martin working together. Uh, but George Martin worked with a lot of other people, too. Uh, could you give some maybe some background stories? Uh, one of the things you point out in the book, Jerry and the Pacemakers, first three singles are number one hits. Even the Beatles didn't have that. Could you give a little background on some of the other artists that worked with George Martin during that time? Uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Billy J. Kramer. Lucilla Black. Lucilla Black. I mean, 1963 was a huge sales, uh, you know, number one hits for George Martin, as well as uh, the Beatles. But... Partly it's because of some of these other acts. It is. Now, it, with the exception of Matt Monroe and a few of the others from his earlier years, most of his acts sort of part ways with him as they realize that he's they're no longer priorities. Shirley Bassey is one of the, the key examples. You know, she was quite miffed when when George was spending time with other artists. And those artists, like the Beatles, were really in, in Brian's Liverpool stable, right? Scylla, uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers, The Foremost, Billy J. Kramer, etc. Those guys were all in, in the Brian Epstein Nim stable. So George was really working in cahoots with Brian, and they made a lot of decisions together. They were navigating that whole business. And Brian, uh, George, rather, if you notice, would say more than once that he just didn't believe it when Brian would say things like, 
well, that George, he's a hit maker, <laughs> you know, that George, anything he touches turns to gold. And it really got on his nerves after a while because Martin believed, and I think truly that it wasn't true, that George wasn't a magic hit maker. He was magic with the Beatles and that core group were working very closely, often with Beatles material, right? right? right. He was trying to put them through their paces. I mean, you, you read about Billy J. Kramer who drove George crazy because he didn't like Billy Jay's voice. And so he would do things to mask it and hide it and <laughs> camouflage, you know, what he thought were the worst bits. <laughs> so um, yeah. he does have a, a lot of success. But if you notice, that success peters out by the time 66 rolls around, with the exception of Scylla Black. And even Scylla needs the strength of that TV show rolling around in 68 to kind of revive her career. Now, that was something that Brian had plotted before he died. So... There are severe limitations, but the thing about George that I, I find fascinating and really heartwarming in a way is like the Beatles, and if he's the fifth Beatle, which I, I agree, sometimes he's the third or the second or fourth, right? <laughs> Depending on how people are, are operating. But one thing that, that always warms my heart is he's not that much different than the rest of them. They really are the sum of their parts. George Martin is never George Martin after, you know, September 1969 in the same way that he is with them. Sure. Just sure. as Paul and John, we could make the same argument. They may have great moments here and there. You know, George certainly does the Princess Diana single, various hits with America, Jeff Beck, you name it. But, That's part uh, two. It's, Come it's, on. It's, it's, you're giving away your whole book. <laughs> well. <laughs> part two, Ken. You know part I mean. two. It's, no, I know. Not, Sorry, folks. Spoiler alert. But, <laughs> but right, I mean, the magic happened when they were together. But very quickly, though, I do understand there was a rumor that when Shirley Bassey walked out, she gave him the gold finger. No. Oh, oh. I, was that written down? No, that oh, was good. Just, that's I was good. Thinking that's what about I thought. that the whole time. Uh, anyway. Ken, you, wow. you, you were talking about Brian and George Martin, like, you know, sort of planning out, working together. Was there any thought of making George Martin a, uh, like a partner in NEMS? Was there anything along that? Because they, they seem to work a lot together. That's a fascinating question. And I, I was never able to find anything uh, making that connection. Now, if you notice the way George will speak very archly, you know, about things like northern songs and, and other opportunities he may have had, he would say, well, I would never take advantage, you know, right. <laughs> right. of them in that way. And, and I guess we have to take him at his word. So perhaps he wouldn't have taken that opportunity if it had been offered to him. But, uh, you know, I've never seen that. I I think their duties were pretty well delineated. George was a studio guy, and Brian was the business guy, and the tour guy. Right, yeah. right. A couple of little tidbits with Beatles that I had not known. Are you going to spoiler alert the book now? I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, maybe I won't. <laughs> you may not want the spoiler alert. All right, two things. How's okay. that? Go ahead. So I'll say Norman Smith. And I won't say any more because uh, maybe he should have been maybe he should have been credited on. Sh no, don't no, sing "Oh Babe, babe what, what You Say." No, he, did you read the book? Yes, I did. Then you know he played on he or he helped out with two Beatles songs that I'm not going to get into. Right. Uh, and he also could have made money with the Beatles, uh, but they rejected him. And, and that last moment that really hurts when you read back on that. It did, yeah, did, really my heart does. sinks for him when I think about that that moment when he could have had a. Uh, a bit of, yeah, 15,000 yeah. pounds, unless 
Unless the song was Oh Babe, What Would You Say? <laughs> and they saved it for the White Album. Could you have seen Oh Babe, What Would You Say? <laughs> on the White Album. On the White Album? I yes. Could, yeah. uh, but I do have a question for you. And you, you almost said it kind of matter-of-factly in the book. And it annoyed me, not the way you wrote it, but it annoyed me for George Harrison when I keep reading things like this. Because a couple of times in the book, for Ticket to Ride, you say, okay, that left enough tracks for Paul to go do the, the leads and the solos, very matter-of-factly. And then again, with another girl, you say, well, that left uh, another track for Paul to do the lead overdubs. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, wow, I know they all had their parts in the Beatles, you know, rhythm, you know, drums, bass, and, and uh, lead, but... Paul really did. <laughs> I mean, take a, a lot of. I sort of got mad for George once again. I wanted to punch Paul, but uh, but uh, you know, stick to the base, you bastard. Well, Just yeah, but it, it 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 sort of you know, unless it was Taxman where George was happy with the way he did it. But other than that, you know, you say to yourself, my God, you know, wouldn't George Harrison get? Upset, and why would George Martin let that happen unless he just wanted to make a good record and that was it didn't matter who played? Well, I think George was over enmeshed with them, and I mean George Martin at that point. He treated George Harrison like a junior guy. He has spoken many times in his later years about his regret over that. He does work it out with George later, but he's he's awful with him. He keeps trying to get better across their career, but even with something, he had doubts about that song. He wow. treated George like a junior member because Paul and John treated George like a junior member. And uh, George Martin tries to justify it, saying his songs weren't up to snuff. But, you know, after a while, that's simply not true anymore. What he is is just the younger guy. Yeah. And that's an integral part of trying to understand the Beatles story is that kind of marginalization of George Harrison. Um, and later in later years, you'll see George Martin go to great pains to try to show the other ways in which George Harrison could be influential. For example, who brings in the Maharishi, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think he felt appropriately a lot of guilt about that. But then also it reminds me of a, a line from John Lennon in that one of those last spates of interviews he did in 1980 when he was talking about you know, the, the sort of behaviors that they had, you know, maybe Paul's megalomania. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, John had his own peccadillos in the studio, right? And he said that at one point that we've been doing that even before Rubber Soul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, everybody thinks it's the White Album. He says we weren't any different. And in that case, what you just described is Paul was being the same guy who he was later, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, I right. guess. You know, he had a vision in his mind and artistically – even as early as 65, he wasn't going to let anybody get in the way of it. But you know what? If Don't Bother Me was a single in 64, because it certainly could have been, it was a really yes, good have. song. Would the whole perception in the band have changed or the whole the, the way about the band changed? Because George Harrison would have had a hit. Because everything I, I that the Beatles did. I think the preconceptions did, were already too, too entrenched. I think maybe. the idea of, you know of them pulling a George Harrison song as a potential A-side. I just don't think. You saw that, I mean, it, it appears in Ken's book that they were sort of irate about the idea of Canada almost pulling roll over Beethoven. Well, they did. As they, did. they did. But he was saying, you know, it, Ken puts it, they were kind of worked up about that, about being about to happen. Yeah, but... Am I remembering so. correctly, too, that of all the British singles, which would be their, you know, official canon... The first time George has any side is the inner light, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about that. That's way overdue yeah. by that point. 
one point that, that keeps coming back to me when I think about those years, particularly 63, 64, 65, and even into 66, is how there was no guarantee that it was all going to continue. We have to almost take off our glasses from, from 2017 yeah. and remember that they had a deep fear of becoming a flash in the pan. They were very afraid that they were going to be here today, gone tomorrow. They were quaking over that, you know. And, of course, they had DJs and critics saying, well, you know, they'll never last. This can't last. And, of yeah. course, what do they do? They start growing their demographic with yesterday and Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine. Suddenly they're going from 8 to 80, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. says their demographic. So um, they were under this kind of pressure. They probably, Brian and George Martin would have said if pressed, that they didn't even want to take the risk. You know, let's get more Lennon and McCartney out there. Let's they were the proven commodity. And remember George. what George called the singles. He called that when they had all the number ones in a row, he called it the role. He didn't right. want to stop the role. That's why to consolidate their fame, remember George and Brian's plan was, what, two albums a year, four singles and a movie or something like that. So, right. you know, they, they had this framework. They believed that if we just continue... Maybe it'll never stop. Or maybe if we stop doing this, it will all collapse before our eyes. Sure. And then it's amazing how it all sort of changes in perspective as you start to get back in 66 now, those full days in the studio again. They're not being a, you know, a set of shows coming up on the calendar within a couple of days. Them actually having time to devote. And it really starts to turn around at that point, I think, and, and it starts to feel as though not, well, we have all the time in the world, but maybe it actually seems as though it's sunk in, that we are going to continue doing this, and we've got the ability to work on it as art, as opposed to, and it's it's a brilliant changeover. To that end, and here we, spoiler alert, everybody, <coughs> um, but this is well known, in 66, in, uh, I don't know, April or something, I don't have the exact month, but you know, they finish Tomorrow Never Knows. Paul has an acetate he's carrying around and he plays it for Dylan. Do you remember this this great scene? And, you know, he's expecting Dylan to say, you know, dang, guy. Wow, you were incredible. You know, he, he wants that response so badly because they've been spinning Dylan just nonstop for a couple of years. And that's not how Dylan reacts at all. <laughs> Dylan says, oh, oh, I get it. You don't want to be cute anymore. <laughs> mm. And Paul is hurt. Lennon, of course, you know, always had this kind of mixed reaction to to Dylan. Right. And uh, but but when I look at that now with my 2017 glasses on, it always occurs to me that Paul already knew that they were these artists. But what had they really done yet? They had not released Revolver. They had R Rubber Soul, which had all the promise in the world, but it doesn't sound like Tomorrow Never Knows. No, he knows that they're capable and they're already doing these things and and maybe has magical dreams in his head of what they will do in the future. But that's not really how the world saw them in that moment. They took a lot of risk with, with albums like that. But Rubber Soul was, speaking about the Dylan part right now, just as good as anything Dylan had put out to date. So I, I'm wondering why it was Paul, different, though. And, yeah, and it but, was also the Beach Boys were doing some really 
Not by 65. By the time Rubber Soul came out? Nah, and, not, and not December as... And December 65? I don't think the Beach Boys were doing as much as... They weren't growing until really Pet Sounds. Pet Sounds, but Brian was already writing... But I'm just wondering why Paul... They were making Paul, it at that time, but they, they, they right. hadn't released it yet. Right, But right. I'm just wondering why Paul would have sought the... Uh, what's validation. The yes, the validation of a Dylan when Rubber Soul was pure Dylan and more. It was a step up, Rubber Soul. I mean, they, they could have continued what they were doing with help, but Rubber Soul started to have a different sound that led to Revolver. And if you think about Rubber Soul, I mean, they recorded it very quickly. And that's a great story, right? That crazy month when they make that album. It's its almost a comedy of errors at the end. What did somebody drops one of the lacquers? George erases part of Think yeah. for Yourself right. or something. Wow. I mean, it's just this comedy of errors. And of course, he and Brian have built in with EMI this due date that they have to meet, you know, to make the holiday shopping season. Um, it's just nuts. Hmm. And interestingly, too, though, as much of an advance as Rubber Soul is, they do second think themselves a few times during the Rubber Soul sessions. Now, I won't say for the first time, but it seems that they double think themselves a little more during the sessions leading up to Rubber Soul, even to the idea of double thinking by going back to a song like Wait. Right. They need you know, to and make it salvaging that make to make it the fourteen songs, I think it just showed that they were expanding so much so quickly that it, they were almost treading over themselves in a way. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. wasn't keeping up, and uh, there were those moments in Rubber Soul where they go out to John's place to write a couple of songs really fast because they weren't keeping up with with their own pace. Amazing. Yeah, which is a, so. Ken, what can we expect in uh, Volume Two? What's the title of Volume Two? It's called Sound Pictures. Okay, and what can we expect in that book? Well, it's uh, to me, it's interesting to watch how George has to go from a guy trying to consolidate their sound with Brian to a guy who needs to maintain, if not improve upon their success for air because he's gone into business for himself. But of course, he's always in this strange kind of tension because the Beatles take up so much of his time. Yeah. He doesn't have a lot of bandwidth to go out and create new acts or find new acts and try them out. It's almost so surprising it's always... he had time to, like, have Giles. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> not until later. really, I mean, you know, he's gestating before the Beatles break up, but he's born on, what, October 9th, <laughs> 1969. Right, yeah. Right. So, so he's really post-Beatles, you know, at least <laughs> as far as, you know, breathing air. Well. And, uh, and he would tell you the same thing. <laughs> True, so, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it, it's all dates and numbers. So <laughs> in any event... Then um, again, George wasn't know, always that let it be, so... True, <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Where was he? I don't know. Uh, who knows? <laughs> he was in his apartment with Judy. No. Right. Well, obviously, if Giles was born in October, then the Let It Be said, huh, well, now we know where George was during the Let It Be sessions. Well, he had Very to keep busy somehow. Yeah. He, was, he was still producing. He was still producing. Just in a different way. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, Ken. Sorry, Ken. So what else? Uh, it had to be said. <laughs> Thank you. This tension, right? And of course, the other problem is, um, and you can read about it in volume one, and that is... The deal that his exit contract with EMI calls for this absurdly low royalty because the Beatles were their act. They don't give him credit. They take credit for, rightly so, perhaps in one sense, they put up the capital, et cetera. But in any event, George has, he's hemmed into a terrible royalty rate with the Beatles, just a terrible rate that goes on through 
I believe, 1976, when everything collapses with the end of Apple, when they when the contract runs out in January 1976. So when George, for example, does Live and Let Die or Sentimental Journey, he gets a terrible rate because they consider those to be Beatles recordings. Wow. That's... Oh, yeah. So, you know, there's this tension. He's making more money. He's doing some movie work. Uh, he has other partners who are doing things. But it really, George starts to really get into the money when he's free of the Beatles, because then, uh, you know, as you know, Air starts to create various studios around the world, has the deal with Chrysalis, you know, et cetera. So he's able to start consolidating his energies in other ways outside of the Beatles. But he wouldn't allow himself to look away until, like the rest of them, he knew it was over. And how late will the next book go, Ken? It goes to the end. It does. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Model airplanes and, you know, (laughs) in March. Yeah. I was going to say, and we don't mean the closing song on on Abbey Road. We mean the end. You're right. The end. And when uh, when can we expect that to be out in our local, I was going to say bookstore, but (laughs) do we have any more of those? How about our local booksellers? How's that? You should have it in September. We hope to debut at the Fest for Beatles fans uh, in Chicago in August. Oh, nice. Uh, great. Yeah, I've got some great new pictures to share, and um, I'm days away from being done. So oh, great. Cool. Oh, wow. That's, great. Wow. that's, that's awesome. I, right. I cannot wait to, yeah. to read it. Yeah. And, and if you really – I'm talking to the folks out there now. If you haven't picked up this book, by the time you're listening to this, you will uh, get excited because you will – Request it for the holiday season of 2017 and beyond, because if you're listening to this later, it's just a a really good book. Yes, you've read some of the stories in it, but I really feel that the first half of the book, Ken, is even better because it gives a picture of of him before the Beatles that we don't often get to read about, uh, which I really appreciated. But, you know, as always, the Beatles stories are are really fun as well. And it's nice to see, as I was saying, it's very enjoyable to see it written sort of in prose fashion instead of having to kind of if you're thinking, well, who did what here who, to run and have to go like consult your your sessions guide or whatever, it's nice to kind of read it as a story and sure. as it happens, and that's great. So, yeah. so the book again is called Maximum Volume: The Life of Beatles producer George Martin, the Early Years, 1926 to 1966. The author is Ken Womack, and Ken, and, we, and really, we should say it's what, published by Chicago Rugey Press. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Do I, I never mention that uh, because they never mention us. So, um, <laughs> Just saying. Right. And, and when Chicago Review finally gets around to doing that correctly, then we can talk to them. Exactly. I, I agree. <laughs> so uh, for the Fab Four Free For All, I have been your moderator for this episode, which we hope you really enjoy. And joining me for this episode has been Rob Leonard and Tony Chuguardo and Ken Womack. Ken, thank you so much. We really had a blast. Oh, thanks, team. It's been great fun. We appreciate it very much, and we will uh, hopefully see you soon. It'd be my pleasure. All right. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Thanks, Ken. Ken. We'll see you soon. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Chiguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate available on its debut album, Digital Retro, and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free-For-All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free-For-All.